Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome to Season 2 of the Australian Investors Podcast. In coming weeks, I'll get back to our regular programming and talk to some of Australia's best investors about their investment journey, philosophy, and process. In today's topical episode, I'm sharing with you a conversation I had with strawman.com founder Andrew Page and a rich life's Claude Walker. This conversation is for share investors and analysts. And those of you who may be feeling frozen by the recent headlines, volatility, and empty supermarket shelves. Andrew Cord and I talk about investing in the face of uncertainty, tips for knowing which stocks to avoid and why, and Andrew provides a framework for valuing companies over a five-year time horizon. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andrew Page and Claude Walker. It's my pleasure to have you here. I'm Owen Raskovich. Today with me, I've got Andrew Page from strawman.com. G'day, Andrew. Hey, Owen. And I've got Claude Walker from A Rich Life. How are you going, Claude? 
Hi, guys. I'm good. I think one of the things that we wanted to do today as a group was kind of just come together and get our head around what investors are thinking and feeling in the current market and maybe just reflect on what we've seen, what we may expect going forward, and I guess just provide some good resources for our viewers and our listeners and, and something to base kind of their, uh, I guess, an informed decision on. So um, I thought maybe, Andrew, I could start with you. Just some of the things that you've seen coming through Strawman or just coming through markets in general, what we've seen over the past month or even just in 2020 to begin with. Yeah, um, thanks, Alan. Well, it's it's been... Um very, very unusual. We've seen the market here in Australia fall around 30% and it's been a very precipitous fall. That's happened in about three weeks. So plenty of historical examples of bear markets and the like, but you don't often see something that falls this sharp. Um, of course, that's happened on all of global markets. Um, within that, we've seen um, certain shares hit obviously a lot harder than others. Um, we've also seen the price of oil collapse. That was already on a big fall. And then we've had other issues there that's pushed it down uh, even further. And interestingly enough, uh, gold, usually the safe haven asset, hasn't really done that much. There was a bit of a sort of a rally there early on, but then even that's sort of fallen away. So what we're really seeing here in a, in a single word is, is uncertainty um, and perhaps uh, uh, a bit of fear on top of that as well. So uh, no one really knows what's going on. And in that, that type of environment, the default reaction is typically sell. How would you say that this compares in terms of just the investor emotion or behavior element? How would you say this compares to previous crashes or corrections? So maybe the GFC or even the dot-com bust? Yeah, um, they, you know, all, all history tends to um, be different each time, but it, but it does rhyme. Um, this is really an unprecedented kind of thing for the markets. We've seen pandemics before with the Spanish flu and SARS, but they were very different, um, very different in terms of what the world looked like, particularly in 1918. And SARS was very, very much um, more contained than what we've seen now. So in a highly, highly integrated uh, global economy and of a pandemic of this size, we just have not seen that before. So um, it, it, the thing that is always the same for every bear market and has to be an ingredient for any bear market is a, is most people not knowing where the, what the future is going to bring. I mean, you, you need that as a precondition because when there's some kind of sensible way to sort of look out, you know, uh, 12, 24 months in, in the future, you just don't get these huge dislocations. You, and this is what happened in the GFC. Remember, we can all sort of explain exactly what happened now. But if you remember at the time, we really didn't know what was going to happen. Was that going to be a global depression of unprecedented kind of magnitude and duration? We didn't know. Um, and that's what's similar this time around. There is just huge amounts of uncertainty. How, how, how far is this thing going to uh, run for? How many people are going to be affected? What's going to be the exact economic impact? We know that the short answer is bad to all of that, but quantifying it is extremely difficult. So again, I just come back to this huge level of uncertainty and that, that's what's similar to, uh, to previous bear markets. Claude, I might uh, throw... I think it... Sorry, go on. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that Andrew is correct, but I also think that there are we have a really interesting situation where there are there are actual some certainties and those certainties are very bad and I think that within the market uh, there's a lot of a debate still going on it's probably just beginning to peter out now and, and I think it'll be vanquished in the coming weeks but up until very recently there's been a huge amount of debate about something um, 
that is a certainty, which is that, you know, this is a lot worse than the, the, the influenza. Yet it was only a few days ago that you had uh, the President of the United States basically likening uh, the disease to influenza. So it's this absolutely bizarre situation where there's a lot of market participants who are genuinely operating on information that is just plain wrong. Yeah. Claude, I know that you, for a rich life, you wrote about this quite some time ago. We were recording this on Sunday morning in mid to early March, but I remember you writing about this quite a while ago. And one thing I wanted to ask you was, what were the things, what were the resources and the indicators that you looked at that informed your view and, and ultimately led to some of the decisions that you've made recently? Yeah, right. So I was a little bit slow to piece it all together. It wasn't until Friday the 21st that I started to really figure out um, that this was definitely going to be a you know, major, major event that we're all going to remember for the rest of our lives. And the reason that I figured that out is because I guess three bits of information happened in just actually just before that Friday, but unfortunately that was earnings season and I was distracted by a lot of other things and I didn't piece it all together. Those three bits of information that I guess finally proved, you know, beyond reasonable doubt that we had a massive problem were uh, you have this news that this church in um, South Korea had basically enabled a super spreader to like massively spike the uh, Mm. infection rate in South Korea. Uh, you had uh, the news that in Japan they were going to, um, having, you know, kept this floating Petri dish of a ship, um, the Corona Princess, as I call it, uh, offshore whilst more and more people got infected, they were going to just let everyone off the ship to travel through normal channels back to their home countries and, you know, catch taxis and stay in hotels and all that sort of stuff. Obviously going to spread it more in Japan. And then also you had the news of uh, the first death in Italy. And as a general rule, you know, it, this even if you're very unlucky, it takes two weeks at least uh, for a disease to kill someone. Now, given that we know that the death rates um, at the beginning of the epidemic or when there is good healthcare available, the death rates are around 1%. Um, so if there's one person that's died, uh, then two weeks ago, probably 100 people had it in Italy, which basically means you've got a big problem. As soon as somebody dies from community infection, you've got a big problem. So that was, I guess, the tip off for me. And then, of course, um, well, that was it. It was already on. It was already everywhere by that by that stage. It's just that was the evidence that showed it to me. And um, I started reacting to that on the Monday uh, by selling a lot of my stocks and I, I kept doing that all week. And honestly, I've only just now started to sort of slow down the change of my positioning where I guess I'm over 35% cash. I'm a little bit hedged. So I've got a little bit of shares in um, a bear ETF, which just goes up when the market goes down, but also you pay a cost for the options. So essentially, you know, it's worse than it's worse than just, the inverse of the ETF, you also would sort of lose money on top of that over time. And then I've also got a bunch of individual short positions through CFDs, which um, I probably will be the first things to close to close out. Um, but yeah, basically, even I'm still long. Like if markets go up, I'll benefit. But 
at the same time, I'm much less long than I usually am. For the last 10 years, I've been pretty much over 90% invested long. So this is a huge change for me. And it's definitely uncharted territory, territory for me as an investor, just as it is for everybody, I believe. Mm. Court, I imagine that uh, a lot of the positions that you trimmed early on or sold completely, were it wasn't just indiscriminate. You were actually basing you know, these decisions on certain factors or I guess um, you were basing it on the characteristics of each business or each position within your portfolio. Can you just run us through some of the, I guess, some of those things that you took into account when you were making those decisions? Yeah, sure. I mean, before I get too stuck into dealing with a pandemic as an investor, I feel like I should probably mention here that this is a serious human crisis. And my biggest concern is the huge loss of life and the large amount of suffering that I think we're facing. So I don't mean to, by focusing on a particular aspect of the impact of this pandemic, I don't in any way mean to trivialise the very real human costs that we're facing. Um, yeah, look, I guess as I initially, I started just um, selling out of the companies that I thought would be worst affected. So I guess prior to February 21st, um, even prior to that, I'd already sold out of Webjet, for example, because it, it was obviously going to be impacted. Um, but then once I realized it was really bad I start, and it was going to be a pandemic, I started being like, well, in the, instead of this being an epidemic in China, which will like slow down travel and affect Webjet, there's, you've got a pandemic which is going to affect everything. So uh, I guess one of the first ones to go was um, a company called Pushpay, which I've owned for a long time. And, you know, it was pretty obvious to draw the parallels between this sort of Korean, um, this Korean church that had spread it massively and um, Pushpay, which is uh, essentially a system that churches use to collect uh, donations from their congregations and stuff. Churches are particularly exposed, a lot of churches are particularly exposed to disease because they, um, I don't know if this is true of any of Pushpay's customers, but I assume it would be the case that they believe that they are protected from the disease by God. So that's certainly the case with, um, say, the Greek Orthodox Church in Australia, which has um, said that they're going to continue to use the, like a communal wine cup or whatever because that wine cup is not uh, capable of having disease on it. And um, this is a kind of belief system that obviously uh, enables super spreading um, and that's going to be very hard hit. Um, I think, you know, if you're not... Step one is you know, ignore it. Step two is everybody gets sick. Step three is you're not going to church anymore. So either way, it's definitely going to be bad for push pay, in my opinion. I, 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 have, a, I have a slightly different view on that, but I, I totally hear what you're saying. Yeah, well, if there's not one example, and that's not advice, like I certainly think that um, in terms of the market reaction, the market now agrees with that view far more than it did when I sold. Um, it's down like quite a lot since then. Um, and I think it'll go down further, to be honest, but I don't really care anymore because I don't own the stock. How about you then, Andrew? I might throw it over to you. Uh, if you have some counterpoints, maybe you can answer the, I guess, the, my question to Claude, which was the factors that you look for in determining companies that might, uh, I guess, succumb to some of the challenges that we're seeing now and those that maybe, uh, I guess, can withstand it, at least to a certain extent. 
Yeah. Um, I might try and avoid getting into the weeds of stock specific stuff because yeah. I know what the three of us are like, and this will end up being a four hour uh, broadcast. Um, uh, but I, I, I played it very differently to Claude. I didn't have the, the, the prescience that, that, that Claude did. Um, and I think this was the case for a lot of the market. This, this thing, we have to remember how quickly this has evolved. What we know today was extremely different from what we knew a week ago, which was radically different to what we knew two weeks ago. A week into the future, things could look very, very different again, for the better or for the worse, most likely for the worse. Um, so so I, I, there, there was nothing that, that saw me make major shifts to my portfolio, even as this whole situation started to deteriorate. Um, that being said, I tend to I tend to play things in a way where I'm always expecting some boogeyman to sort of come around the corner. I mean, that's just the nature of markets. We didn't know it was going to be a global pandemic. It could have been any number of things, and all the bears out there for yonks have been giving us plenty of things to sort of worry about. Um, I actually went into this crisis in a very heavy cash position, and that was more a function of just not really being able to find a, a, a good number of high-quality investments at a price that I thought was reasonable going into it. And I think, you know, even before all of this started, there was a lot of a lot of really smart investors just sort of saying, hey, things are super expensive mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, the quality side, yes, there's some really great companies out there, undoubtedly, but in terms of price, there just wasn't a huge amount. So... You know, um, like Howard Marks often talks about, you know, it's not so much about trying to predict the future. It's about trying to have a good understanding of where you are right now. And my read of of the markets back at at the beginning of the year was that things are really crazy expensive. And I just didn't have a lot of high conviction ideas to to put to work. So fortunately, there was a fair bit of um, cash going into it. Um, As it started to unfold, um, I haven't sold a single thing, Um, uh, partly because... um, I'm pretty confident that all of the businesses that I hold will survive. Um, I, 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 I think whenever you, good times or bad, you've always got to buy things with, with an eye to quality and the, you know, whatever nasty thing comes around the corner, it will endure. Um, having said that, um, the intention, of course, is, again, reiterating Claude's point here, it, it sounds so trivial and based to sort of talk about you know, money and investing during a time like this. But in terms of how I plan to sort of play this going forward is to, we, we sent a communication out to all of our members uh, yesterday, in fact, basically just saying we, we think it's a good idea to stop trying to predict how, what the magnitude of the falls are, when they're going to happen, et cetera, et cetera, and just commit to putting money to work over the next 12 months, 18 months, if you prefer, um, and just, just giving yourself sort of five pulls of the trigger. Um, an approach like that is, is by definition not going to give you the exact bottom of the market, but it is going to ensure that you get a really attractive average. And as crazy and as, as devastating as this current situation is, and, and I really don't want to downplay that at all, this, this is really, really serious, um, it will pass. And, and so that, that there's, a, there's a two-pronged uh, strategy here at play. It's first, it's survive, and survival just means ensuring that you've got really great companies, every share price is going to be hit, no matter how high quality the business is, right? And we've seen that already. But also you want to position yourself for the eventual recovery whenever that might be. I think you touched on a point there, which is very similar to my own my, my own circumstance, which was leading into this, I was fortuitous in my positioning. It wasn't, you know, by design, I just happened to have cash on hand. So um, I guess that lessens or dampens the, the downside for me. But I guess just to reflect on what you guys said, we tend to, or at least I tend to err on the side of talking about this uh, issue as 
an investor because I am not an expert. I do not understand all of the other, I do not understand pandemics. I don't understand epidemics. I'm merely looking at this as an investor, but trying to keep myself as informed as possible. So uh, yeah, I think it goes without saying that we all, um, investing comes second, the welfare and safety of ourselves, our family and our communities comes first. Um, Andrew, you touched on some things there about cash and positioning. Um, for me, it's, and, and also dollar cost averaging, I guess, just making a commitment to yourself uh, before the fact to, to commit money to the market. For me, it's, it's having the cash, you know, emergency cash set aside from a personal finance point of view, that gives you so much peace of mind. And I don't consider that an investing decision. That's just a, a lifestyle and well-being decision, if you like. Um, but we can always be more active, of, of course, and, and use that cash at certain times. But I guess that as long as you're employed, you've got your, your finances sorted, then this other stuff is more about where does value take you? At least that's the way I think about it. So where do I see opportunity? Um, and some people see it on the short side, of course, like Claude has, has, has done, I guess, aptly or well recent times. Some people see it on the long side. I don't think myself, I don't think I'm in a position to make a good guess, if you like, if there is such a thing, a good guess uh, where markets are going in the short term. But I guess I'll just let value take me there. I think I think that I think that's the key. Oh, and it's, it's the, the we all get so hung up on trying to sort of pick major turning points in the market. And your goal as an investor, as a serious investor, is really just to buy high quality assets at sensible prices. That's it. You do that, well, and you're well, you're going to suffer big falls, of course, as the market falls. But over time, yeah. you're going to do extraordinarily well. That's my. I, I mean, I think that that's. I mean, that's a fine approach, and some people do that. I guess my approach is that plus one other thing, which is also sell things that are that are overvalued. Mm. Um, I'd, so I'd agree with that, Claude, but I would say that you would do that under normal. Like, if, forget if the coronavirus never existed, you should probably be doing that anyway. If you've got some assets yeah, that course. are wildly overpriced, you, you know what I mean. So, in that sense, it's kind of the same as 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 per normal. Mm. But it's not as simple as uh, I guess, like uh, buy low, sell high. It's more. Uh, buy undervalued, sell overvalued, and when you have like a uh, like massive, massive event that's going to affect the business economy, like every aspect. This this pandemic, in my opinion, will impact every part of our lives over the coming few months, and I agree um, with that. that that includes the valuation of every single business on the planet, pretty much. Um, one way or another, there'll be a very small number of like long term winners and mostly just losers and some of those losers will range from you know just like that's not such a big problem for them and they sort of go through it and um others will other companies will just go bankrupt we're already seeing some companies go bankrupt but well, yeah we have um, in the in the uk for example we saw some a travel company uh, flyby go out of out of business Claude, i'm interested in that because I think you put out a tweet recently discussing I'll quote unquote low PE stocks. How are you seeing this in terms of when you decide to uh, make a decision? So like, how does the, the macro influence your forecasts, your valuations, those types of things? Are you thinking about yeah. that right now or is that still a few months off? Of course. So, no. So that's the exact right question, right? Because we don't know how to value any stock in the world right now because we don't know, we can't make any reasonable um, prediction about how badly they're going to be. Um, maybe there are some companies that you sort of, you can, because you know, whatever happens, they're going to be fine. But for a lot of companies, you just don't know how bad the impact is going to be. And a huge amount of that depends on how the U S handles this. 
because they are, you know, such a big and important economy. Um, and basically what I'm doing is I'm trying to follow the um, disease and the human response to the disease and we're getting new information every single day and that some of it's positive, some of it's negative. Singapore, for example, is given like everybody like a blueprint of how you can handle it with without letting your um, hospital system get overwhelmed, but that still has a huge cost. Um, China is giving us an example of how you can like get a handle on things and then continue to uh, go about your life. China's I don't know exactly what state China is in right now, but what we everybody knows, because you can see it on Twitter, you can see people on in China, I've got friends in China, that they're going back to work. They are going and doing commerce. They are traveling about. Now, everywhere they go, they get their temperature checked. If they want to go into a store, they get their temperature checked. If they want to go into a building, they get their temperature checked. You know, there's precautions are being taken and people, you need to find the virus, you need to find the virus, you need to trace the virus, you need to isolate the virus. So that's the only way to deal with it that we know of as humans. And until we have a antiviral or a vaccine, I don't see any other way of dealing with it. And I don't think it's possible to um, really have much confidence in the valuation of companies until everybody's doing that. And once everybody's doing that, you can start to say, all right, well, this is sort of as bad as it gets. We've gotten the, I wouldn't say under control, but like we're now taking the necessary measures to um, try to remain coherent and humane as a society. And then once we're doing that, we can start measuring, I guess, like what the fallout to business is. Can I ask you a question, Claude? Um Let's assume the worst case scenario. So just a very um, poor social policies, political response. And this thing just like a wildfire rages through the, the global population. How long do you think that plays out in terms of before there's some kind of resemblance of normalcy? Well, I mean, if that, if, it, if you just, if you just, nobody knows what would, what it would look like if you just, you sometimes see people say, oh, like, just let it run its course. Like, that is completely absurd. That's stupid, like, yes. Yeah. If, not, not just because it would be inhumane, but because, like, there will be, like, mm, like potential for, like, um, societal collapse if you do that. Um, if, you just, if you just say to everybody, hey, um, yeah, we can't control this, so, like, um, you know, that's going to be just an absolute disaster. Right now, with countries doing everything they can to um, control it, you have some absolutely um, atrocious death rates. Um, like, so Italy was um, was late, later than they could have been to control to control it. But Northern Italy, where the outbreak started, has you know absolutely great um, healthcare system by world standards. Um, and I, I can't remember, I'll check, I'll check right now, but at the moment, the most recent WHO data, so this data lag, lags a little bit, that has um, a death rate of 7.1% right now. Um, so even if only 
even if this is a kind of illness where if you let it run its course, it would only infect 50% of people. And that's a pretty conservative guess from what I've read that different um, uh, experts are saying. But even that, you'd still have something like 3.5% of people in that area where you just let it go would die. And that's not just old people. That's all sorts of people. I guess, I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> um, I, I guess where I'm, what I'm kind of getting at here um, is, is that even under a very, very poor situation, we could argue about the specifics, but it's probably three years, four years, maybe two years before, before things return to normal um, before it, maybe it's just something that we all have to live with. But I guess that the key thing that I've, I've not seen anyone sort of disagree with so far is, is that this will end. Right. And, and when, as investors, we know that value is predicated on the entire lifetime value of a business. So you're right. If there's something that's not going to survive, I mean, you know, there's, there's no point averaging down and buying low on something that's ultimately going to go to zero. And there'll be a bunch of stuff that does do that, which is why balance sheets are so the key thing to focus on at this point in time. But on those ones that, 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 that do survive, and if we had some magic crystal ball that it gives us visibility, perfect visibility of their earnings out through till the end of days. Um, I mean, I wrote an article on this, um, I think it was last week, which, which basically sort of said when you, when you do um, a discounted cash flow on that, and just for the intellectual exercise of it, rather than getting into the specifics of any one stock, even when you completely eradicate earnings for the next two to three years, you, you'll, your drop in intrinsic value is, is material, but it's, it's not it's not anywhere near the quantum that we've seen for some of these sort of stocks. So I guess, I guess my point is, is that if, if you've done the first part, which is you focus on the, those businesses that can survive, that have a, have a, a long-term future, that have strong balance sheets, they'll be able to at least have some kinds of cash flows coming in during this period. Then, you know, if they've fallen 50%, there's probably something, it doesn't mean they can't fall another 50% from there, of course, but there's probably something there to suggest that unless, unless the longer term future has been materially altered as well, that that might be an overreaction. Yeah. I think the medium term future has been material, like will be materially um, altered. So like, also I don't think it's going to be as long as you said, like two, three years. Like I think that ultimately I really hope, but I think also the odds are ultimately uh, a medical breakthrough um, really comes to our rescue. Like we're, humans are quite good at science and as long as we have the resources and space to do it it's very well, yeah, that's, that's kind of, yeah i get that that's kind of my point though is even if you take a longer time frame you, you still get the math still sort of works out that that the you know the, the the true erosion to intrinsic value isn't as potentially anywhere near as large as, as what what we've seen on markets for particular companies and I guess that's what for me is the, is the interesting thing here. So it's not a question of sort of saying how low is this going to go? And, and the natural reaction I always see in these kinds of environments, people say, and it makes a lot of sense at a certain level, is I'm just going to sit this out. I'm going to wait for it to be over and then I'm going to get back in. And I think that's entirely the wrong way to play it. We've seen how fast this thing has evolved on the way down. And we've seen, Owen was asking before about the, the experience of, of past bear markets. I mean, no one rings a bell at the bottom. No one recognizes the turning point um, when it happens. It's, it's usually decried as a dead cat bounce. And the best parts of any kind of gain in a recovery are in the early stages. So, um, and I know you're not advocating sell everything and buy back in, but just, just that, that idea of, you know, start from this, start by looking at the world five years out, which I think you should do anyway. Um, 
start by looking at companies that that can endure very very difficult periods and then predicate your yeah. idea of value on a long-term cash flow basis yeah. i i think yeah. i think you you will find some really incredible opportunities throughout all of this even though um, you know, when you look at your performance, you might be seeing a lot of red there for the next six, 12, possibly longer months. You so know, there are two, two years two later, key, you probably won't have too many regrets. There are two key points there, one of which I agree with and one which I have a slightly differing view. So one key point is that, um, you know, there will be some great opportunities. I strongly agree with that. That's exactly why I increased my cash. Somebody who's sitting on 30 to 50% cash right now is still going to have like a good amount of cash when this thing really starts to look better, like when it actually thinks it seems like we're coming through the other side of the pandemic, I imagine that there's going to be some amazing opportunities to buy good quality companies at that point in time. And that is absolutely what I intend to do. And that's in, in fact, my main focus over the, over the course of my uh, self isolation period is going to be finding those opportunities. Uh, but then the other thing is you say that I, you didn't actually, so I'm not, directly disagreeing with what you said, but I feel like an implication is in that was when you're saying look out five years, um, as if, you know, this will be like long forgotten in five years. I actually have a slightly different view there. Um, I think in some places where they manage it really well, this will be long forgotten in five years, but in other places, this is going to be a real scar. Um, now, there are two main reasons for that. Um, so first of all, we don't know yet what, what recovery really looks like from this. So in China, they have had, um, you know, they've done studies that saying the people that were infected by SARS-1 had pretty, like, poor life outcomes after that. Now, I don't understand properly why that was, but basically it, it, full recoveries in their life and in their health was not always made after that coronavirus. Um, second of all, it's very common for um, other viral infections that we've now forgotten because of vaccine, vaccines, but having lasting effects. So, People would recover from polio, but they would still be like disabled in ways. Like part of their body might be paralyzed. They couldn't walk properly or something like the forest. Sure. I, I, should, I, should, I should clarify. I didn't want to suggest that it's going to be, a, you know, forgotten by everyone from a social. Yeah, no, you, I just, I just, markets, market. I mean, you, you can look you at weren't really suggest, You weren't really suggesting that. I was just sort of, it was sort of something that someone might, might get out of, I guess, what you're saying about the five-year view. And what I'm sort of saying is in, the, in my five-year view, I still see a lot of, um, uncertainty about how well both the actual human beings affected recover but also society so for example one of the most shocking things that i've um seen so far um which almost brings a tear to my eye thinking about it is like the current um, british government's plan to the virus um they don't they seem to almost it's very unclear what's actually going on in in britain at the moment but they seem to almost deliberately be um not moving as fast as they could and you know i thought it was bad when australia decided to you know ban gatherings over um, non-essential gatherings over 500 on on monday instead of on saturday kind of thing i thought that was an opportunity lost but um it it's i'm not quite across what the british politics are saying right now but it seems to be that um they seem to be having a different approach from other countries who are trying to clamp down on it really quickly, like Singapore and, and South Korea. And to my mind, there's going to be a huge societal cost to pay. Like there'll be psychological damage done to societies that um, do that because there's going to be like a lot of human suffering, a lot of anger. Um, and it ultimately, it will be like very destabilizing for those economies. So 
not quite sure how that will work out. That's also just my guess. I guess we're very deep into the unknown here, but mm. I guess what the known is that is if you handle this like Singapore is handling it, you you can do okay. I and think, so anything else just seems crazy to me. I think we can all agree that the the more we think about this, the more uncertain it becomes, the more assumptions, the more variables that come into play. And I think if we bring it back to investing basics, some of the things Andrew touched on, Claude, you did too, some of the things that let's just focus on firstly um, being comfortable with what, what we're doing. So just have some sort of plan or being confident to hold cash if that's the case. The second thing is let's look at those balance sheets. Like for people that maybe can't do a discounted cash flow analysis, um, perhaps you're, 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 you're even, you feel even more underwater than us right now. Uh, and we're, we're acknowledging that we at times do feel underwater too. But maybe it's find companies that are high quality with, no outstanding debts. I mean, once you see friction in the credit markets, which is something as stock investors, we don't talk about a lot, but once you see that, that's when other second or third order impacts come into play. And we want to try to avoid that as much as equity investors. So avoid companies that are heavily indebted, cyclicals, those types of things that you know feel, you feel will be sensitive, not just for the next week, month, or even this year, but maybe one to two to three, four, five years into the future. Try and avoid those if you can. Um, I just want to come back to one thing before we tie up this meeting. It was originally intended to be a 30-minute call, but it's kind of blown out as expected, I guess. Uh, I just want to get your views, guys, on, I guess, the financial system. Any views on banking in particular here in Australia and how this might impact it? Maybe, Claude, I'll throw it over to you first. I'm uh, probably the wrong person. I don't, I don't have any uh, major view on that other than, I guess, to say that I think that, you know, we're going to go for me, this will be the worst economic and financial shock that I've sort of lived through as a fully grown adult. So um, my reference point, I guess, is the GFC when I was a young man. And I think that this will be, um, I think that the GFC outcome for Australia falls somewhere in the range of possibilities uh, for the coronavirus. But at the moment, my probabilities that I'm calculating would indicate that this will be worse than that for us. But I, I'm not sure. I simply don't know. Uh, yeah. So, um, again, none of us know. I think one, well, a couple of things we, we need to remember, though, with, with banks. And um, I've, I've said this a lot before, but I think in Australia, we have a very um, interesting view of banks because we've had such a long period of time without um, a recession. And we've had such an incredible tailwind with an absolutely on fire property market that we see these things as absolutely bulletproof. Banks are extraordinarily cyclical businesses. They're very, very sensitive to economic conditions. So if we do see some very serious economic fallouts here, and it looks like that might be the case, we're going to see an increase in bad loans. We're going to see banks much more restrictive in giving new loans. I mean, that's the lifeblood of, of banks there. Um, we're going to see uh, lower interest rates. We've already seen emergency mm. cuts to interest rates. They're lower interest rates are bad for banks because it, it impacts their net interest margins. Um, then there's potentially second order effects as well. If, if we see a bit of a turn in the property market and people stop being so feverish there with, in terms of what they're doing, that's going to take another leg out from underneath the banks as well. So we've seen the banks fall about 30%. I think that's an entirely rational move. Um, and I think it could, it could potentially go a, a, lot, a lot further than that um, as well. So, um, you know, uh, one of, the, one of the dangers you see with, with companies like this is that people will say, well, look, it's giving me a 7% fully franked yield. You know, even if the share price doesn't do anything for a while, I'll, I'll be okay on that. 
um, one of the one of the traps that a lot of people get caught with is that, that yield is always quoted on the last twelve months worth of dividends. So we saw cuts to the dividends uh, in the GFC. We, we could easily see that again. In fact, that would be a prudent capital management initiative from the board if things get very very tough. So um, for me, the banks are not nearly cheap enough yet to be interested in, um, and and things could definitely get a lot worse then. Yeah, I think that's a good fitting way to end it. Just to tuck my two cents on the end there. I'd say I'm, I'm comfortable today because um, with my investments because I don't have, I don't think any company in my portfolio that is net debt. So cash minus debt, I don't think any one of my companies is in that position. So there is no need for them to go to the bank and ask for credit at a time when they might be already uh, seized up in terms of their ability to lend. So I think that's one thing. And then you can consider that, um, I guess, as um, the way to I guess come around to an opinion on the banks. I don't want to be in that. I don't want my companies to be in that position. I don't want to be in that position personally. So it's probably not going to be easy for them going through. But we're not predicting doom and gloom by any means. I guess um, just to just to. Well, I mean, I'm pretty I'm pretty gloomy, <laughs> but mostly about the human costs. But also, yeah. I think that human costs will have a financial cost. Absolutely, absolutely. That's you know, I think it, yeah, absolutely, Claude. I mean, it goes without saying. All of us, you know, we we are thinking of the families, and and indeed, we're taking steps in our own lives to uh, make sure we're safe and 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 we're doing our bit for the community right now. I might end this conversation here, guys, because I know I'm conscious of time. Um, Do you mind if I just add one very yeah, quick go thing? for it. Yeah, oh, I, mean, I just I think it's an important thing. I think a lot of people watching this now, listening to this now, will be sitting on some really brutal losses. And that's really hard. I mean, it's very academically, we sort of look at these things intellectually, we know that they're going to come, but none of us act in the way we think we're going to when when it happens. If there's one thing I can sort of really focus um, people's attention on is to remember very obviously, you can't change the past that that has happened. So don't you you see a lot of people in this situation, well, I'll average down because my loss isn't so bad, you know, or I don't like this anymore, but I'll wait for it to get back to where it was before I sell out. Forget any of that stupid stuff. Now is the time is to look at everything that you're holding and ask yourself, can this weather the storm over the next, say, two or three years? Um, Does the price right now, not what I pay for it right now, does that incorporate to a sufficient degree all of the risks as, as I see them? And if there's nothing that stacks up at this point in time now, sell it, get the hell out. You know, um, you don't have to recover the money in the stock that lost it in the first place. And there's nothing that you can do to make uh, uh, to make up for the mistake that you may have made previously. So this is very much about looking forward at this. You want to be on the offense here. You don't want to be reactionary. You really want to be saying like, where, how am I positioning myself now? And I think that is, that is fundamentally important. I think that's like, well said, Andrew, come back to having a plan taking stock of what you own now and, and making sure that you can get to that three to five year view. Um, I, I will say that if you, if you are listening to this, um, you are, you do have, um, you know, maybe a lot of anxiety, you're feeling um, unwell by all of the, the talk about this, please reach out to any of your medical professionals, your, anyone that you think can give you support at this time, because we're talking about investing numbers and money are one thing. Human life is another thing. So we'll put some resources in the show notes when we send this out. So please take advantage of them. Um, and if you want to follow us up, you can do that. You can head to strawman.com to find Andrew and you can head to a richlife.com.au to find Claude's views on things. Both resources are fantastic at times like this because you want to be informed. So guys, I'll, I'll, I'll put it into it and I'll say, Andrew, strawman.com, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure. Claude, as always, mate, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining me and um, good luck with Thanks, Rich Life. Thanks, mate.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.